This episode of the Skift podcast features a discussion from a recent online Skift event. To join us and learn more about future Skift events, visit live.skift.com. Welcome back to the second annual Skift Aviation Forum. And now, please welcome the CEO of United Airlines, Scott Kirby, in conversation with Skift Editor-at-Large, Brian Summers. Hello, Scott Kirby. Hi, Brian. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm well also. Uh, thanks for doing this. I just want to let you know that I took my first flight on United in about a year and a half over the weekend, and I was on time. So that was That's what good. matters. Um, service on board as well. Time to get back to the though. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, so thanks for doing this. Uh, I have a broad question to start with you. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm sure your team told you that I'm a, a loyal United Flyer in addition to being a journalist. And every time I log into Mileage Plus, it reminds me that I've been a member since 1985 and I was born in 1982. Oh, wow. And, and this is like the most zip that I've seen from United Airlines in those 35 years. Your employees seem to like being there. The product is pretty good. It's a premium airline. And I'm just wondering, in a weird way, is the pandemic like the best thing to ever happen to United Airlines? Did it give you a clean slate to almost start over again as CEO? Well, you know, I'll never say it was the best thing to happen, uh, given, you know, everything that happened to the whole world during it. But it certainly accelerated our change. And I think we made a decade's worth of progress and things that we were going to try to do uh, and, and focus on doing but really made a decade's worth of progress. And I think you hit on the most important point, which is the way it feels when you fly United. Uh, our employees are, are proud of what we did to get, not just to get through the pandemic, but even taking stands, uh, whether it's sustainability, diversity, vaccines, you know, whatever it is, um, but starting to lead the industry uh, and not just be a leader in aviation, but a leader in corporate America, uh, creates a sense of pride that shows up in better customer service because if our employees are proud of the airline, they want you when you fly to feel the same way. And, and I've started saying, you know, I have actually the easiest job of anyone at United Airlines because I only have one responsibility, make our employees and our customers proud. And if they're proud, they're going to figure out how to take care of the customers. So I know you spent a lot of time at conferences and on TV talking about customer <laughs> service and things like that. Uh, but we're all nerds here, right? We want to talk about, um, the network, the places that United Airlines flies and when. A lot of frequent flyers, you know, they know that four o'clock flight or that seven o'clock flight is always going to be there. United is always going to fly between these two cities. Have you taken a top down look at the network and said, maybe we should fly here and not here? Should we change our flight time? Should we improve the connectivity? Like, how has the pandemic changed the network? Um well, uh, I'm also an airline nerd. Well, I'm a nerd in general, but an airline nerd in particular. Uh, it took me a long time as I got promoted to stop going through the aircraft flows for every schedule. Um, you know, so <laughs> I used to spend that. I'd take it home on the weekend to do it. Uh, it took me a long time to stop doing that. Uh, in this case, though, you know, what is great is I now have people that work at United, uh, starting with Andrew DeSella. Uh, who, uh, and then Patrick and Ankit and the people that work for them, who are actually better network planners than I ever was. Um, and so it's great to have, you know, I always thought I was one of the best in the world, but to have the people that are even better than me. Uh, one of the other things I've loved of late is uh, 
Patrick Quayle, who's our senior VP for alliances and international, uh, has started sending me decks uh, about where we're going and new routes that we're considering or are about to announce. And for the very first time in my entire aviation career, I'm having to go on Google and look up the airport code, <laughs> which is pretty cool um, to be flying to places that uh, that I don't even know the airport code for. <laughs> Uh, you know, the, the, those cities, and I assume that you're familiar with the airport code of, say, Amman, Jordan, uh, where yeah. you're flying, but some of the other ones that are maybe in the pipeline that you're looking at, are those cities that were always on the United Airlines list, the places you might go in the future, or is this purely a pandemic play? You never would have gone there otherwise. Yeah. They weren't, uh, is the short answer. And we started uh, markets like Accra, Lagos, uh, Joburg, I mean, well, we knew Joburg would work, but, um, you know, a market like Accra, which had our highest load factor, and actually I think was our most profitable across the Atlantic this summer, uh, you know, in a pandemic summer. And what we realized is that there's this huge set of markets like that, um, that uniquely work for United because we have a hub in Newark and we have a hub in Dulles. Um, and those are the two best launch points for a lot of cities around the globe and so Amman would I never had seen Amman on any of our potential lists um, but Amman and there's a number there's you know a dozen other cities like that that are now on the list to consider as long as they keep working um, you know that were fully pro allocated profitable during the pandemic they're the kinds of places that only United can fly you know we've taken to saying and I think it's true United really is the flag carrier of the United States. You know, our, our fleet of international wide bodies is about the same size as all the other U.S. airlines combined. And because of where our hubs are, Newark, Dulles on the East Coast, San Francisco in particular on the West Coast, there's just a lot of cities around the world that we can serve profitably that our, our competitors, they've got great domestic hubs. I mean, I envy Dallas or Atlanta um, as hubs, but they just can't have the kind of global reach that we can have uh, out of our coastal gateways. So I know you don't like to give a whole lot of information to us on these sorts of things, but you know, in broad terms, can a profitability of uh, Washington D.C., Accra, or Amman? I mean, can that compare to San Francisco, Shanghai, San Francisco, Tokyo during 2018, 2019, or is it kind of a different thing going on? Uh, it can. Um, you know, double digit. You know, we can get to double digit profit margins there, and. and um, and it is less. It was less profitable than our most profitable international flying was historically. Though that wouldn't have been San Francisco, Shanghai. Um, but it is. Uh, you know, it is solid double-digit profit margins. And and like everything, I expect it will be even better on the other side of, of the pandemic. And what makes it great is it, it's unique. And because you know, United is the only airline really in a position to serve. You know, mostly Africa um, as an example of Africa, the Middle East, India. Uh, you know, we're just in a unique position to serve markets like that. And they can be uh, nicely profitable, but they also wind up creating a much more loyal set of customers because, you know, if you're a customer that, you know, India is the perfect example, um, you know, that that travels to and from India and you want to be able to use frequent flyer miles to go back and visit your family and you live in the Newark, New Jersey region, um, you wind up flying United, you're in our frequent flyer program and you got our Chase credit card. Um, and you take your business trips to the West Coast on United out of Newark um, because you're using those miles to get you and your home, your family home to, you know, see family in Mumbai or Delhi or Bangalore or wherever. Um, and, uh, and that's a real advantage for us.
And on the business side, are you starting to see any international business traffic uh, return? Absolutely. Uh, you know, one of the things that this surprised me, actually, our European business bookings are as on a, on a percentage basis are higher than domestic already. Um, I mean, immediately when the border opened on November 8th, our business bookings are still down, but they are down less than our domestic bookings. Um, and I expect, you know, an even bigger increase uh, as we as we get into January. You know, I think next year, uh, next summer in particular is going to be the busiest summer uh, for us, at least across the Atlantic. And it's another place where United, you know, the path that we chose to chart through the pandemic, because it's different than others, uh, leads to a different outcome. And we're going to be, you know, historically, United has been the third or fourth largest airline across the Atlantic. And we're going to be a by a wide margin number one uh, across the atlantic and, and serving the kinds of markets that i think there's a, a whole host of markets flying across the atlantic that um either immediately or over time united will be the only only airline that flies non-stop between the us and those points um, just because of our where our hubs are um, and the fact that we didn't retire wide bodies you know means we can pounce on the opportunity when others simply don't have the metal to do it uh, I know you're also very bullish right now on London. Uh, just a quick uh, geek question. Did you have to buy any slots in London? How are those trading right now? Um, so we didn't buy any, uh, but we have used our partnerships uh, around the world uh, to help get slots um, from our from partners. And, and Patrick Quell, who runs our international network, has done an amazing job of going off um, and, and finding ways for us to get slots in one of the toughest markets um, in the country. We have a lot to offer partner airlines. You know, we've got some of our partner airlines that, you know, they fly into all of the United Airlines hubs, but they fly from places that are too small for us to fly into. And we can we connect hundreds, in some cases, thousands of customers a day uh, onto their airplanes. And so finding win-wins where, you know, we can support their flying into those hubs um, and, you know, we can take an underutilized slot that used to be flown on a narrow body on a short haul route to Europe or something um, and use it, you know, to, to add a flight to, on a big wide body into the United States um, has been a great opportunity for us. The other thing that's really changed at United is, you know, we used to try to serve London with a subpar product. When I got here to United, we flew, you know, 757s, you know, with a not very good product on board the airplane. And now we're flying really, you know, our best, if you're a premium customer, the high J, 767 with 46, you know, Polaris seats on board, um, you know, it's just a phenomenally good product. And so we've put a great product in and one market share um, in that market. And uh, pretty amazing that, you know, how big United is today and how different our profit profile is than it was when we used to fly a bad product. It proves, by the way, which I'm sure you, Brian, and the people that you write for will care about. It proves that customers care about quality. You know, at United, there's been this long history of, well, there's not that much demand for premium to London. We can't compete with JFK. So we're going to put, you know, a crappy product in there and minimize the losses. Um, by putting a good product in, we get people back on the our side of the river uh, flying uh, and do really well. Uh, but we had to put the right product in. So I'm, I'm sure that there's some people listening to this thinking, uh, is this the Scott Kirby that I know, the guy that ran an airline with the ticker symbol LCC for low cost airline? People thought of you as the U.S. Airways guy, just obsessed with costs at all costs. 
Um, I always thought that you were playing the hand that you were dealt there, yeah. right? And that when you got to United, it, it required a different strategy. Yeah. Is that how it worked? Yeah. So, you know, uh, there's two things I'd say. Um, one, absolutely playing the hand. Maybe there's three. I would play the hand that I was dealt. You know, when we were at America West, we had no business trying to chase the premium market. It was not going to work. Um, and we also, I think we're smart enough to recognize that in the long term, that business model didn't work. So we went out and essentially acquired US Airways, then essentially acquired American Airlines. By the time we got to American, I at least was trying to change the product and they reversed some of those decisions and I respect that they have a different view. Um, but it's become, the second point I make is, well, I might've thought that, you know, it's not just the hand I've been dealt uh, playing, but I see the results. Uh, you know, we'd seen them early at American. I've definitely seen it here at United that when you create a great product, when you are open, transparent with customers, um, when you communicate effectively, uh, when the service is good on board, it creates this virtuous cycle. At least in an airline like United, which has our hubs and has the, our potential and our customer base, it creates a cycle where customers will choose to fly us. It, it's not a commodity product. If we can win based on product, quality, and service. Um, and I guess the third point I'd make is, you know, I always had a boss before. Um, and, you know, if your boss thinks one thing, there's only there's only so far you can go pushing that envelope without getting fired. And eventually I pushed far enough that that happened anyway. Um, but, you know, I, I, I have definitely evolved um, as I've seen evidence of, of how much customer service and product can matter. But as the hand has changed, um, it's given the chance to, to really focus on it. And I'm completely convinced now, particularly as we come out of the pandemic, that having that United Airlines is going to have the best product, hard product, but also the best atmosphere, customer service. Our people are proud at United Airlines. Um, and it's going to be the airline that customers that have a choice are going to want to choose to fly. All right. Uh, I mean, I, I'm not sure that I'm ever going to get a straight answer about this, and maybe it's small ball. <laughs> but there are people at American Airlines that were in some meetings with you that have told me, no, 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 Scott wanted the TVs off the airplanes. And they've seen you go on TV and say otherwise, that you've always been a TV guy. Can you set the record straight for us? Are you a TV guy or not a TV guy, historically? I am absolutely a TV guy. My stories will go back even further. When I was at America West and JetBlue had just started, and I think he had 12 airplanes at the time, I had negotiated a deal with uh, Live TV to put them on the entire America West fleet, which would have been transformative for Live TV. Um, and because we were 80 or 90 airplanes and JetBlue was 12. Um, I can remember going to the board at America West. And it was a huge deal because it was like it was a couple hundred million dollar investment for us. Huge deal for us to do that. Um, convincing them to say yes, uh, lots of skepticism, but we were going to do it. I called the CEO of Live TV back. He didn't call me, which was weird because this was that going to increase, you know, added, you know, order of magnitude increase in the size of his company. Called him back the next day, didn't call me. He called me back 48 hours after our board meeting and said, I'm really sorry I didn't call you back. JetBlue found out that you were going to put, America West was going to put live television on the airplanes and they bought the company to keep it from happening, <laughs> which was brilliant for JetBlue, by the way, because uh, it was a great thing for them to do. Um, and then in America, we were putting uh, live TVs, we were putting Seatback Entertainment, all the seats on new deliveries when I was there. I'm told that two days after I left was the meeting happened where they decided to not only stop that, but to spend money ripping them off. So I'm not 
they can have their own opinion about whether like uh, seatback entertainment makes sense or not. So I'm not debating that at the moment. Um, but there's a hundred percent, uh, without question, I always supported it. Um, and all right, American didn't, <laughs> and they changed the decision after I left. So, uh, you know, all of you CEOs have these phrases that you like to rely on uh, publicly. And uh, one of your competitors in Atlanta before the pandemic would always talk about the Delta revenue premium, 10% all the time. Um, there was some question about whether that was structural because they had that hub in Atlanta. Um, can you get to like Delta margins and Delta profitability? Uh, I believe we will exceed. Uh, we will get to NFC Delta. We've simply at United never realized uh, really our, our potential. Um, and by the way, uh, my if I had to pick one saying is my favorite saying, it would be no excuses, sir, um, which I think goes a lot further than saying 10% revenue premium. Uh, because what that means is you, you figure out how to do the right thing. You figure out how to get things done. And to me, that has been, you know, one of the, lessons or at least um, things that points of pride at United Airlines is the leadership role we have taken in in the industry. Um, vaccine requirements, sustainability. I mean, it's not just airline stuff, um, United, but it's not just, you know, things about the airline. Um, and that philosophy and that approach is sort of fundamental to what we're doing at United. And if you look at where our seven hubs are, we always had the structural ability um, you know, I think to be the leading margin airline. And by the way, Delta is great and they do a great job and I have immense respect for Ed and his team and what they have done uh, and do. I just think we have better raw ingredients. Um, and I think we're going to, there are two airlines that are both going to be really well managed. Uh, we're going to compete aggressively uh, with each other. Um, and I think we're going to, there's room for both of us to do really well. I think we will win. I think that starts because we just got a better, we got a better hand of cards, and if you got a better hand of cards, ultimately that's going to win. They got a head start, though, um, and they've been doing it. And they they deserve a lot of respect, but I do think we will ultimately catch and surpass them. See, I would have thought that your buzz phrase is "it's just math." <laughs> I like that one too. My <laughs> wife bought me a T-shirt finally that says "it's just math." If I'd have known you were going to say that, I'd have worn it today. <laughs> I haven't broken it up yet. <laughs> All right. So along those lines, I want to geek out about uh, something else. Uh, you know, uh, historically, you're a pricing and you're a revenue management person. Um, I had something bizarre happen to me uh, with United these past few weeks because I was flying uh, this past weekend. Uh, flights to this vacation destination that I was going to and coming from were selling out. They were selling out two, three weeks in advance. I thought stuff like that like never happened. And I, I, I'm curious, like, can your revenue management system, Gemini, predict the demand that's coming in this weird pandemic thing? Or are you guys a little bit behind in trying to figure out who's going to show up and when? Yeah, it's been it's been hard to predict. I think our team has, has done a really amazing job. Um, you know, we, we Gemini and I am a geek and understand the math. I'm probably the only airline CEO that understands the math of revenue management systems. Um, and I do, but, uh, you know, it, it solves a number of the fundamental biases and problems that existed in revenue management systems before. It's never had a chance to really prove itself uh, because once we kind of got it up and running, the pandemic hit, and it's completely different now. Um, and for the most part, we've taken, we're starting to revenue manage more, um, but a lot of the pandemic, we, you know, really 
revenue management was almost turned off because it doesn't work if the, if you don't have high demand. Um, but there are some locations, and, and also the other thing that's happening is demand is shifting really fast. And so take a leisure destination, for example. You know, if Hawaii all of a sudden says, the governor says, please don't come to Hawaii, Cabo has a massive spike in demand um, that you could then a yield management system could have never forecast. And then the governor decides to open up Hawaii. Now there's a big spike in demand to Hawaii and Cabo goes down. So those are much harder to predict and forecast because the forecasting systems are just based on history. And they're really not good at predicting what a politician is going to do or say. Um, and those kinds of things drive demand at the moment. Um, so I think we are getting back. You look at a time like Thanksgiving or the Christmas holidays, um, you know, we're able to actually yield manage more in a more traditional way uh, than we did historically. Um, but it's also different now because there's not much business traffic. And so with lack of business traffic, you know, the amount the, the pricing difference between a low fare and a higher fare is is not nearly as big. And so there's less opportunity for revenue management has been during the pandemic. I think that'll be different next year, though. So, I mean, is it still like the worst thing in the world to sell at a flight two weeks early or the, that old rule doesn't really matter anymore if you're making money well, on a flight? The worst thing is to fly an empty airplane. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, selling on a flight two weeks early is a high class problem. So uh, you alluded to this Thanksgiving and Christmas. They look pretty good, both commercially and how about operationally? Yeah, you know, uh, we have a lot of confidence at United. We, But we operationally set ourselves up different than at least a number of our competitors did. Uh, you know, we started with the recognition that we couldn't go from zero to 100 miles per hour overnight. You couldn't snap the system up overnight without breaking something. And so we've been gradual and metered it in. We negotiated a deal with our pilot union to keep everyone in their same seat and their same you know, aircraft and seat. Um, so we haven't had the staffing issues uh, that others have had. Um, and, and we've managed it much more carefully, um, I think, than others have. Um, it's been remarkable to me to watch some of the things that have happened in the industry. And, um, you know, anyway, I, I'm confident what we have here at, at United, but we've, we've left ourselves a margin of error. Um, and an airline, if you don't build on a margin of error, you know, a little bit of ripple in the system, whether it's a weather delay, you know, one afternoon or high winds one day, if you don't, if you're not careful, it can cascade into a meltdown. Um, and we've maintained the same kind of margin for error that we always had. And I think some of our competitors eliminated their margin for error and their zeal to get back to flying a full schedule. So I, I feel like historically, one of the problems in the airline business has been the commercial team being siloed from operational team and nobody asked the other whether they could fulfill the schedule. Is that is that something that you, you deal with at United or is there more communication? You you really are an airline, Brian, because <laughs> you have the nail on the head. A hundred percent of the time when airlines have had an operational meltdown, it is because the commercial team got out over their skis um, and didn't listen to the operations team 100% of the time. Uh, every airline, when it has happened, that has been what caused it. Um, I, by the way, did that early in my career once. <laughs> um, I was in the commercial team. I got out over the skis and the airline paid the price, uh, but I learned from it. Um, I'm willing to make a mistake, but I try not to make the same mistake twice. Um, and it's remarkable to me that it's happened not only after one airline did it, that others did it, but that some of them have had it happen more than once. Um, because it is literally all that has happened. The commercial team and commercial teams at most airlines get a lot more power, a lot more analytical horsepower, 
And if you let them run wild, they'll run the airline off a cliff. Great. Thank you. Uh, I wanted to shift gears a little bit. Uh, again, you're a very, very smart man. You understand technology better than anyone in the airline industry, I think. Um, but when I ask people about United's investment in Boom, one, and then two, that United is advertising that it's going to fly this supersonic airplane by 2029, uh, the, the nicest thing people do is shake their heads. And then beyond that, people say it's a paper airplane. It's never going to fly. They don't understand. This is an airline crowd watching. Can you tell us what's going on with Boom? Why you're so sure that this is the real deal? Um, well, we have confidence in Boom um, and believe that, that we will make the 2029 date. Um, nothing is guaranteed in life, um, much less than aviation, but, but confidence in them. And, you know, I think what I'd say to the, the naysayers is, you know, the naysayers, you never change the world by being a naysayer, um, by sitting on the sidelines and saying everything is impossible. Um, and, you know, we want to change aviation we want to change the world um and so we're gonna try things like boom <laughs> vaccine requirements fit into that category um you know our sustainability efforts fit into that category and 100 percent of what we do isn't going to work but a lot of it is uh, i think boom is going to be one that works uh, got a great partner there understand the engineering you know it's a it, it, long way to go from here to building the airplane and you know might the certification process take longer perhaps um but the technology is sound. It can be done. It can be built. I think it ultimately will be, whether it's exactly 2029 or not. I don't know for certain. Um, but you know, we're not going to let the fear of failure uh, cause us to miss opportunities. We're going to pursue opportunities. All right. Thank you. I want to go from a really exciting airplane to a really unexciting airplane. Uh, in the past couple of weeks, uh, we've seen United pull out of somewhere about a, a dozen small cities in the Midwest um, and the West. Uh, those were served with 50-seat airplanes. Um, why did you guys pull out of those uh, those markets? Not enough pilots. I mean, it's it's simple. But um, you know, we've been talking in aviation about the pilot, the looming pilot shortage for a long time, and. Uh, particularly given all the accelerated retirements that happened during COVID uh, and the fact that um, most airlines, including us, are growing a lot on the other side. Uh, the pilot shortage is now real uh, and we just we don't have enough pilots to fly uh, all the airplanes. And so 50 seaters, 50 seaters are at the bottom of that pile and markets that are reliant on 50 seaters are the ones that are that are going to lose service. But it's, it's very simple. It's just a pilot shortage. Those are old airplanes themselves. You're not looking to replace them, and those cities are going to leave the network if they can't perform. Uh, that's certainly true in the short term. Uh, those cities will leave, and it's not really about performance. It's that they're not big enough for larger aircraft. And you know, part of our aircraft order is, you know, our, our plan on United Next is to replace about 200, two to 300 um, 50 seat regional jets, you know, with mainline equipment. Um, that it's not one for one replacement there'll be a trickle effect down on, on airplanes, but essentially um, to remove two to 300 regional jets while we bring in 500 uh, mainline aircraft. Uh, and and th that process has started. It's going faster um, because of the pilot shortage, but you know, it was, it was always inevitable. All right. Um, I'll, I'll geek out about another one. Cause I want to ask you questions that you're not getting on CBS news or things okay. like that. Um, <laughs> 
you Nobody talk about the big air commercial and ops on that. <laughs> You're the All right. Um, you, you talk about the big aircraft order, but years and years ago, more than a decade ago, uh, United placed an order for Airbus A350s. The can keeps getting kicked down the road. Nobody thinks you're actually going to fly those airplanes. Can you answer once and for all, what's going to happen with that order? I don't know. <laughs> the That's the honest answer. Uh, it's a great airplane. Uh, you know, I like to say I was a launch customer for the A350 when I was at U.S. Airways uh, back in the day. Uh, it's it's a great airplane, um, but the 787 is a great airplane also, and we've got a big installed base on those. Uh, you know, we're we're I think of the the 350 most likely as the way we would bring it on as the long term potential replacement for the 777. Um, you know, having a large installed base of Triple sevens, seven eights, and three fifties. It's just harder to rationalize the incremental fleet complexity. Um, but you know, we get towards the end of the decade, and we're going to begin retiring the older triple sevens, um, and they need to be replaced with with something. Um, and that's the opening. That's the reason that you know we have kicked the can uh, down the road uh, because that's the right timing to make that decision, uh, and that's how the three fifty came. Great. Um, thank you. We're getting an audience question. I think you may be able to see it here. I'm I not did. sure, but I'll ask you. Uh, we've gotten the same question twice. If somebody really wants it answered, it's yeah. about uh, your partnership with Landline, the bus company. Uh, yeah. The question is, how is the partnership with Landline going? And do you see growth opportunities with them domestically or internationally? And again, Landline is a bus service that acts sort of like a regional jet, right? Yeah, it's a luxury bus service. It's, it's a great product. Um, if you fly into Denver and want to go to Brack or um, up to Fort Collins, uh, it's a great product uh, to go uh, to get on and try. Uh, and I'd encourage you to try to try it. Um, I've done it. Um, as far as I know, it's it's going well. I think it's a little early to judge. Um, there, obviously, uh, the plan is is to grow it at least domestically. I don't know of any plans to grow it internationally. Uh, but to grow it domestically. And I, you know, to me, I kind of think of this as how we uh, hopefully can do the partnership for closer in airports where we're starting to be constrained on the number of flights that can come in and out of airports. In Europe, it's a little different because they have train service. If you get the, you know, trains connected to the airport, you can have that kind of intermodal transfer. Our partner with Tons has got a lot happening with the rail service in Germany. Um, we don't have that in the United States. And so in a world where we're capacity constrained at airports, in a world where we're pilot constrained to fly 50 seaters, um, in a world where we're worried about carbon emissions when there's a better option, you know, I'd love to see landline successful because it can tick all of those boxes, um, particularly by being a luxury premium experience for, for customers. So I think it's too early to, to conclude it has worked or hasn't worked. Um, because we've been during the pandemic when it's been going, uh, but I'm anxious to see it work on the other side. All right, um, thank you. And then I'll ask one more nerd question and then we will uh, we will get out of here. Uh, you made a big deal out of uh, ending change fees at United Airlines and, and all your competitors followed suit. And I'm curious, uh, you know, you talk about it's the right thing to do and customers don't like it, but from a commercial perspective, have you been able to measure any sort of uh, any change in revenue based on this, or is it just too early? Uh, it's it's way too early, and we've been in the middle of the pandemic. Um, even in a normal time, I think it's going to be hard to measure. The measure will ultimately be, you know, 
United Airlines total profitability and how that's comparing um, uh, to others across across the industry and and in absolute because eliminating change fees isn't isn't just about getting market share for people that don't want to have change fees. To me, the bigger point on it is cultural. Um, and we tell our employees at airlines that we want to do the right things for customers. Then we make them charge change fees. And somebody shows up and says, you know, I just lost a family member. I need to change my flight by a week. And we say, okay, but it's going to cost you $200. And our employees don't believe that we want them to do the right thing for customers because they didn't think that was the right thing for customers. Connection saver, you know, where we're saving, you know, north of 2,000 connecting customers a day by holding for connections. You know, when we've told our employees their whole career, slam the door in those customers' faces, and then you try to tell them to do the right thing for the customers, they're like, you're full of it. Delay codes, you know, when we have a culture where people sit in conference rooms for three or four hours fighting and arguing over who gets tagged for the one-minute delay, like, I mean, these are... These are not just customer policies, they are cultural policies. Um, and so that's harder to measure. Um, I think the measurable will turn out to be because we're changing that culture and empowering and convincing our employees that we are genuine when they say we're there, we want them to do the right thing for the customers, they will do the right thing for the customers. And then we will start to get market share and we will win customers based on quality. Um, and that will tell in the bottom line, but that's how we're going to win customers. Do you have any more tricks up your sleeve that you want to share today about what you're going to do uh, for customers going forward? Yeah, I mean, there's tons. I mean, you, you you know about the product. You know, I think one of the most exciting things we're doing is communicating uh, more effectively to customers what happens when there's a delay. I mean, I'd love to have zero delays, but if you can see out, well, you probably can't see out my window today. Here in Chicago, I can't see more than about four buildings away because of the clouds. That means that the operation, you know, there's just not enough capacity out at the airport at O'Hare. And so it can't run um, effectively. But telling customers what's going on, being open, honest, transparent, it's just one example. Making it easier to fly. You know, I flew internationally twice um, in the last two weeks, and I flew on uh, three different airlines, uh, including one of them being United. And uploading your, you know, using the Travel Ready Center to put your, on our app to, you know, get your vaccine information, know that you've checked all the boxes, print your boarding pass before you even leave your house um, is so much easier. Like making it easy and eliminating stress um, for customers is, you know, is one of the things we are focused on doing. Great to have the hard product, great to have the service on board, but eliminating the stress of travel, being open, honest, communicating, uh, with customers uh, is another thing that is a real difference maker. And we're just in our infancy. We're not as good as we want. I think we're better than anyone in the world, um, but we're just really just getting started. On it. Well, thank you so, so much, Scott. Uh, we're out of time. I uh, appreciate it. Thank you, Brian. I enjoyed it.